friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. renowned pieces of art in the world is this, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, painted by Michelangelo in the 16th century. Uh, It's interesting, too, uh, it's believed, and pretty good record, to state that uh, Michelangelo did all this by building up scaffolding to the Sistine Chapel and, like, basically lying on his back and painting there. So, we're in company with the Vatican, so pretty good uh, company to be in there with scaffolding. As you can see, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is made up of an abundance of biblical illustrations, but perhaps the most famous specific piece from the entire ceiling as a whole is uh, this piece, named The Creation of Adam. Uh, Now, I'm far from like an art historian or an art critic. I was an English education major in college for about three weeks, so I do have a pretty extensive humanities background. But all that aside, I can do a little bit of research. So um, based off of that, here's a description of the creation of Adam piece that I read uh, in preparation for this. As you can see, God's right arm is outstretched to impart the spark of life from his own finger into that of Adam, whose left arm is extended in a pose mirroring God's. This serves as a reminder that God said in Genesis 1.26, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Man, what a beautiful rendition, what a beautiful depiction of what I consider to be one of the most beautiful truths in the entire Bible. The fact that we are animated by and intended to bear the image of the almighty God of the universe. Further on in the description that I was reading, however, it included a detail that I'm sure many of you are aware of, given the level of fame of this piece, but I thought it was important to point this out this morning, uh, given where the discussion will be going. So the description went on to point out this detail, that the two index fingers, Adam's finger and, and God's finger, are actually separated. They don't come into contact with each other. And they're separated by a small gap, about three quarters of an inch, between both of them. You'd be right in assuming that this detail is not a happy accident. In fact, in my reading, there seems to be a decent amount of scholars that not only think that this is intentional, but that it's intentionally representative of the unattainability of divine perfection by man. Now before we go any further, I want to be clear that I'm not here to hate on Michelangelo and the piece. I have no business critiquing any of that art. I'm incredibly thankful that this piece of art exists. It's beautiful. And honestly, I think that this idea of separation between God and man is interesting and at times can be a helpful thing for us to ponder. However, I believe that Jesus specifically wants to mark us this morning and this season for us right now with a different image. 
not because this one isn't important or beautiful, but simply because the story does not end at perpetual separation. It's not where the story ends. So speaking of the story, let's jump into the story that uh, we're going to talk about today. If you've got a Bible in front of you, or if you can get out your device, I would love for you to have the text in front of you this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. Mark 1, verse 40. While you're flipping there, I want to remind you that uh, we're currently in a teaching series uh, titled Encounters with Jesus, in which we shockingly are looking at humans having encounters with Jesus. We just got out of a series uh, talking about encounters with the risen Jesus, and we thought, man, this is going pretty well, learning a lot of good stuff. Why don't we keep seeing how people are encountering Jesus in hopes that we encounter him in much of the same way? A couple weeks ago, Sue preached to us about uh, Jesus encountering the demon-possessed man. Um, and all flattery aside, this is probably one of the most powerful sermons that I've ever heard. And if you were here that morning, you'd, you'd probably agree. I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that on the podcast. Last week, uh, Jonathan preached another beautiful story where Jesus encountering blind Bartimaeus. Today, we're going to look at Jesus encountering another person in need. And a person that, if you read in Mark 140, is identified, not by his name, with four words. The first four words of Mark 140. It says, a man with leprosy. A man with leprosy. Now, uh, we need to stop here, just even after just those four words. Because uh, those four words for Mark and for his original audience in uh, the first century would have meant something pretty different than how maybe they hit us this morning. Number one, I would venture to say that uh, you are, are not super familiar with leprosy as a disease. It's not around you or I uh, as much as it might have been during this time, thankfully. Uh, but secondly, uh, not only do we not understand the physical reality of this very clearly, but uh, we definitely don't understand uh, just in our day and time and our context all of the social, emotional, mental, and spiritual ramifications that this label would bring with it. So let's talk about this man with leprosy. First and foremost, I want to talk about his physical reality. The thing that's probably uh, most clear to us right upon hearing those words, but still needs to be pointed out. This man's physical reality would be extremely and obnoxiously painful. And I point out specifically that it would be obnoxiously painful uh, because there's nothing quite like literally not feeling comfortable in your own skin. This is an inescapable, inescapable physical reality for this man. This story is recorded in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Luke, it's believed, uh, is a doctor. He's a physician. And he, being the doctor that he is, adds in a detail that Matthew and Mark leave out that I think is actually pretty interesting. And I'm going to take the doctor's word on this one. In Luke's description, he says that this man was covered with leprosy. Covered with leprosy. This leper's physical reality is one of extreme and obnoxious pain and discomfort. 
But it's interesting, as the, the leper comes to Jesus, as we keep reading in verse 40, listen to what happens. He says, A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, he says, you can heal me and make me clean. So he definitely acknowledges the physical reality that he's in, right? He says, you can heal me. He's asking for physical healing. But he adds in another detail there as well. He says, you can heal me and make me clean. Because for this man with leprosy, this is more than just a physical reality. This has major social ramifications for him as well. Being afflicted with a disease of this kind in a first century Jewish community would have major social repercussions. In uh, Israel's law, uh, in, in the Torah, in, in Leviticus 13, if you want to flip later on and read through this list, there's a long list of how to identify what they call defiling skin diseases and what to do about each affliction that you would encounter. And again, because this guy is covered with leprosy, he probably would have fit all of these bills that are talked about in Leviticus 13. And it ends with saying this in verse 45 and 46 of Leviticus 13, that anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. And as long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone, and they must live outside the camp. Now, you might be pretty familiar uh, with this if you've heard this story before, but let's not run past what that reality is for this man. Especially that last phrase, you must live alone, you must live outside the camp. This man's social reality can be described really well in one word, he's isolated. And even on the like, rare occasion that he would come in contact with somebody, uh, you should hear and see this guy coming from a long way away. He looks different on purpose. And he's having to shout out, unclean, unclean. Anytime he comes into near proximity of somebody else, he's forced to identify himself by his disease and defilement. If we go on further in examination of this, torn clothes, unkempt hair, covering the lower part of your face, and crying out. All of these things are in the Old Testament as practices that are associated with Jewish mourning customs. This is what you would do if you were mourning a death. So not only is this guy not supposed to be around people, anytime he gets around people, he's got to remind them that he's diseased. But even if all of that goes I guess, well, um, you're still basically the walking embodiment of mourning a death. It's a decent buzzkill if you're that guy. His social reality, man, this is severe. One commentator, when commenting on this story, said this, when the priest had pronounced the leper unclean, it put a stop to his business in the world cut him off from his friends and relations and ruined all the comfort he could have in the world. Imagine that you were one of just a very select few, not everybody doing this at the same time, but you're one of a very select few in Oklahoma City who is still under like our strict COVID restrictions that we had right at the beginning of COVID. 
but you couldn't quarantine in your house. No, you had to go outside of the, of the city. That's where your social distancing took you. And uh, you couldn't even be around your like, designated social circle. Remember those like, five or six people that like, we could be around during that time? You can't be around them. You are alone and outside the camp. We know that COVID restrictions in the U.S. and the world at large had some pretty massive business and economic repercussions. But at least as we were going through that, most of us went through those at the same time. We went through them together. Imagine for a leper during this day and age where everyone else's income patterns are staying the same. Or at least if they're not, they're able to react to them in real time. Meanwhile, it seems as if this man's income would have become virtually non-existent. And your home and your belongings are left to whoever remains there. Which then begs the question, what's, what's this guy's family situation? Was he forced to leave his wife and children at home alone to fend for themselves? Was he a caretaker for siblings or for aging parents or grandparents who needed his help? Now, what does this guy do all day? What do you do with these restrictions other than sit and reflect on your diseased, isolated, unclean state? Our world talks at length about the negative effects of some of the COVID restrictions on our mental health, anxiety, depression levels, etc. Can you imagine how this guy feels? And I wonder, how, how long has he had to live like this? If we were in this situation, I wonder, where would this leave me or you spiritually? How many questions about God or for God must this guy have had? Why me? What did I do to deserve this? Why am I not getting better? What do I need to do? Can you hear me, God? Is anyone listening? Perhaps he thought back to synagogue or Torah school and these words from Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Regardless of how long this man has actually been afflicted with this condition, we can certainly understand him being in a place of frustration, sorrow, hopelessness, and isolation. And if you've been, Psalm thir- if you've been in Psalm 13 type times in your life, where you can sit and say, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Then you can understand how hard it is to fight off those intrusive thoughts that maybe God's abandoned me. That maybe that image portrayed in the creation of Adam is our destiny. To be continually separated from God by our circumstances forever. But despite all this, the rules, regulations, unmet expectations, and frustration that should be keeping this man far from Jesus. Despite all of these things, for some reason, this man is somehow convinced that he can experience the divine healing touch of God. 
So in courageous faith, he heads out on his way, and eventually he gets into Jesus' presence. And when he does, he simply falls on his knees in front of Jesus, crying out, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. This is a remarkable act from this guy, given all that he's going through. There are so many things that are remarkable about this man's reality and the way in which he approaches Jesus. But the first thing that strikes me whenever I read these words is this. Man, hear the conviction in his voice. Hear the conviction in his words. Even though this man is experiencing all that he's experiencing, all those difficulties that we just spent a long time talking about, he comes to Jesus fully convinced of Jesus' ability to heal and to cleanse him. The man appeals to Jesus, not on the basis of ability. He doesn't say, if you're able, hopefully. He simply begs for Jesus' willingness. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. And this faith, this faith is a defining characteristic of the encounters that we've already been talking about and that we will continue, spoiler alert, to, to be looking at in the rest of this series. Again, a couple weeks ago, the demon-possessed man, when he approaches Jesus, he falls on his knees before Jesus in acknowledgement of his power. And he simply begs Jesus for mercy. Bartimaeus, last week, Jonathan told us, man, this guy is convinced that if he can just be loud enough, even though everybody's telling him to be quiet, if he can just be loud enough and catch Jesus' attention, he knows Jesus can do this thing for him. Just thinking about that woman with the issue of blood. Been bleeding for 12 years. And she musters up the faith to say, if I can just, if I can just touch the, the edge of his robe. It's that Roman centurion who comes to Jesus and says, my child is sick. I know you can do something about it. You don't even have to come to my home. You can do something about it right now. The friends of the paralyzed man, didn't think about this, but we're kind of with a roof problem here as well. They say, we'll, blow, we'll lower him through the roof if we have to. This kind of faith, this kind of faith, this is indicative of the exact thing that Jonathan touched on last week when he said, God always pays attention to the desperate. God always pays attention to this act of faith. There's only one thing in the Gospels that it says amazes Jesus, and it's when that Roman centurion comes to Jesus, and it says he's amazed by his faith. These people that we're talking about, and we're going to continue to talk about, have seemed to pick up on this fact, and look at what Jesus does with their acts of faith. And I love specifically how Jesus reacts to this man's faith in this story. Verse 41. Man. Moved with compassion. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. Man, this may be my favorite scripture in the entire Bible. Moved with compassion. Jesus reached out and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be healed. Our God is the one who sees the isolated, the hopeless, the labeled, the desperate fall at his knees, and he is moved with compassion. 
this term in the Greek that gets uh, translated as moved with compassion. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. I'm going to completely butcher it. But uh, it refers to, to Jesus being moved in the inward parts of his being. Our God, guys, is moved, is moved deeply within himself by the isolated, the hopeless, and the desperate. In fact, Jesus is so moved by this man that he does the absolute unthinkable in this story. Yes, he heals him of his leprosy instantly, by the way. The power of Jesus. But that's not what I'm talking about. That is unthinkable. But he does the absolutely unthinkable in this story. Even more surprisingly, Jesus reaches out and touches this leper in order to heal him. See, the whole reason for all the rules and regulations about lepers distancing themselves from other people and shouting unclean so that they know that they're around is for the sole purpose of avoiding contact. And yes, this is about like avoiding contamination and like germ swaps and all that stuff. But even more importantly, it's because the person who would come into contact with someone who is ritually impure as this leper is would become ritually impure themselves and then would have to enter into that same kind of isolation period that the leper was going through. So you do not touch these guys. You do not. The leprous man is taking the ultimate risk and even approaching Jesus in the crowd that surely surrounds him. This man has more than likely already broken multiple purity rules in order to get this close to Jesus, but he stops short of actually touching Jesus so that he does not transfer his impurity. The respect and love that he has for Jesus. But man, in the twist of all twists, Jesus is so moved with compassion that he takes it upon himself to close the gap between himself and this man. Jesus is willing Knowing that the man is kneeling at Jesus' feet, I would imagine that, like we see in this picture up on the screen, that the place where Jesus would touch him first would be his head, which is a super interesting thought, because if you go back and read the, that list of things in Leviticus that the leper identified himself with, almost all of them have to do with the head, the hair, the face. And that's where he touches this man probably first. And I'm borrowing a, a, a thing out of Sue's book here. I can't, I can't prove that this is the case, but man, it's so compelling. Don't you just know? I, I, just, I can't get around the fact that knowing Jesus the way, that, the way that I know him, can't you just see him not just being satisfied but touching this man's head? But, but bending down and getting on his level to look him right in the eye and to embrace him in his newly cleansed status. That sounds like the Jesus that I know. Jesus, the embracer. Who knows when was the last time this man was touched? The last time he was hugged? Or had any kind of affirming or friendly human contact due to his condition? But no longer. 
This man makes an extravagant move towards Jesus. And Jesus is more than willing to not only return the favor, but Jesus ups the ante to ensure that this man experiences all that he's looking for. Because surely this man is not just looking for healing and cleansing, but for restoration and for somebody to come near. Jesus has never been satisfied with a three-quarter inch gap between himself and humanity. The image at the end of the story is not defined by the permanent gap between God and humanity. Instead, it looks like a God who is willing, no matter the personal cost, to close the gap between himself and humanity. And sure, this humanity might be unclean, messy, dirty, beaten up, and mourning. But he loves us. He cares for us. And he is deeply moved with compassion on our behalf. Our God is not only willing to close the gap, but he's the one who's actually initiated all this reconciliation himself. The reason the leper could come near to Jesus is because Jesus is already traveling in his direction. And not only that, but God is powerful enough to do something about the gap in an instant. Our God is willing to touch the untouchable and embrace the long-forgotten ones. Our God is deeply moved with compassion by his children, and he, play, he pays close attention to the desperate cry of our hearts. Friends, this is the whole story. Here is your God. So what do we do? What do we do in response to this powerful, willing, compassionate, gap-closing God? If you were here on Wednesday night, you heard Jonathan speak about an idea that I'd like to propose to us all again. This idea of consecration. Consecration is simply the act of intentionally setting apart someone or something for the purposes of God. You could say that the leper is consecrating himself for Jesus and that Jesus consecrates this man as well. Our friend John Tyson preached a sermon on consecration recently. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along these lines. And what is needed more in our day and age than a people consecrated to God? What is needed more than a people intentionally setting themselves apart for God's purposes? In his sermon, Tyson brought up uh, this famous quote by a guy named D.L. Moody. And Jonathan brought it up again on Wednesday. And here's the quote. I think I put it on here. Yeah, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And he says, by God's help, I aim to be that man. Man, that quote has stirred so profoundly in my heart over the past week. I've just been thinking this whole week, can you imagine what could be done with a life fully consecrated to God? And while my mind has been racing all week about those possibilities... The revival, the healing, the miracles, the visions of God. As my mind was racing about all those things, I was struck 
by a simple reminder from the Lord that could be summed up in this way. He said, consecration begins with nearness. Consecration begins with nearness. And this is exactly, again, what the example of the leper teaches us in this story. All the hope and inspiration that we're drawing from this account this morning is simply because of one thing, the nearness between the leper and Jesus. If we want Jesus to do extravagant things in and through our life, man, I just, I hear the leper shouting to us from heaven this morning saying, just get near. Just get near. If we're looking for an extravagant way to respond to the extravagant love that Jesus has shown to us this morning, and if your heart is burning to accept the invitation of consecration and to be set apart for the purposes of God, friends, there's no better place to start than by simply coming near to Him. The band, you guys can come back up. As we are pondering a move of consecration towards Jesus this morning, I'd venture to say that there's probably two voices filling our minds in this room right now. One voice is that voice that we just talked about, the voice of the leper, (laughs) screaming, yes, draw near. Draw near, come into the embrace of the almighty and compassionate God. Meet God's extravagance to you with extravagance towards Him. Our prayer team will be up here in a second if you want to respond in that way. Maybe it's just throwing yourself into worship in an extravagant way. Maybe God is is doing a work in your heart and mind right now, reminding you of some conversations that you might need to have or some things that He wants to instill into your life. Can't you just hear the leper saying, meet him with extravagance? But I'm not naive to the point that there's probably another voice that's probably quietly composing a list of reasons why your extravagant response isn't necessary or why your extravagant response can wait. Or it's reminding you about the ways in which you might be putting yourself out on a limb. That you could get hurt, that you could get exposed, that you could be disappointed if you decided to move extravagantly towards Jesus this morning. Can you imagine the back and forth that the leper must have experienced before deciding to go and see Jesus? think the leper didn't have a laundry list of reasons to not go see him, to approach him? But his is actually literally written down in Leviticus 13. His list of reasons to not go and approach Jesus. But for some reason, guys, he was convinced that this was the move. And he would not allow for this list of reasons to be the end of his story. What if I move towards Jesus and it doesn't work? Can I stay back to that voice? What if it does? What if it does work? Maybe that voice is saying, today might not be the day. 
maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. No, it's July 4th. We had a word prayed in the prayer room this morning. Not let tomorrow, <laughs> or let tomorrow worry for itself. Maybe today's the day. might be saying, what will people think of me? How will they react? Well, funny enough, this is exactly the thing that we see with the leper at the end of the story. See, after his cleansing, he actually like kind of disobeys Jesus, which I never really get in some of these stories. But anyway, he, he can't keep his mouth shut about what has happened to him. And as people see this guy and hear about the compassion and power of Jesus in his life, they are led to Jesus as well. D.L. Moody wondered what would happen in the world if the masses were to see one man fully consecrated to the Lord. Well, here, we get maybe a tiny glimpse of what that might look like. receive something this morning. We you stand to your feet if you're able? And I would also encourage you, whether you can stand or not, the leper positioned himself in front of Jesus in a position like literally to receive. You're probably comfortable with a bunch of different things. Maybe some of you are comfortable getting on your knees and being like, maybe you're just comfortable with this. Maybe it's a heart posture for you, but I'd encourage you as you receive this to put yourself in a position to receive and to restore you. What if Jesus wants your consecrated life to have a ripple effect as well? What if your kids see your consecration and they're attracted to it? What if your spouse sees your consecration and rejoices because God is finally answering their prayer? What if your friends see your, con your consecration and think, man, if it can happen to that guy... Surely, it can happen to anyone. What if all these things that we're worried about this morning are the exact things that Jesus wants to handle for us as we draw near to him? Friends, the end of our story does not have to be a permanent three-quarter inch gap between us and God. God of the universe put on flesh and came near to us at immense personal cost. He has closed the gap and has embraced us regardless of any unclean, desperate state we may find ourselves in. He is willing. Let that wash over you. He is willing. And his invitation is simply this. Come to me.
increase our willingness. Help us to meet your willingness with willingness of our own. Make us more like you.